0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for September 1st, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today, we're joined by a special guest on the webcam, uh, Patrick McKenna, one of our mobile device security experts. Uh, Patrick, it's been a while since you've been on the show, so maybe you could just give us a quick synopsis of what you've been working on lately.
2: Hey, John, yeah, thanks. My my name is Patrick McKenna. I'm a lead member of technical staff on the mobile endpoint security team at AT&T. Uh, and our team is responsible for doing the security assessments of the devices that come into our portfolio and end up in the customer hands, uh, as well as security assessments of AT&T mobile applications. So everything involving mobile and uh, a lot of things involving the network and all that good stuff.
1: All right, cool. Yeah, and mobile device security, as we know, is a hot topic. We're seeing a lot more of that over the past few years. So uh, definitely a valued contribution you're making to the company in that space. So... Um, also, uh, on the show we have Matt Kaiser, uh, one of our regulars. Thanks for joining us again, Matt. And Stan Nurilov, also a frequent contributor to the show. Thanks again, Stan, for joining. Thanks, John. And uh, I'm John Hogeboom. So, uh, first off, I think the first story we have here is one that you were looking at, Matt, mm-hmm. uh, regarding some iOS malware, which is not a frequent occurrence when we see malware on the iPhone platform. So. So this is a pretty cool research um, by uh, Palo Alto Networks along with a group
0: called WaveTech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the, the name WaveTech comes from uh, the phone Chinese iPhone forums, where they're, they, they're, they're from. And there are a bunch of technical users who are taking a look at some patterns of fraud and abuse of Apple iTunes accounts. Okay. And it seems that um, certain apps from some of those Cydia offshoot stores, the ones that, you know, if you've jailbroken your iPhone, you can access these Cydia stores and pick up, you know, unapproved software. Right. Uh, some of these have been packaged with this malware, calling it KeyRater. Now, KeyRater, what it does is it actually scrapes out credentials from within the stores and I- within the, the protected stores within iOS, uh, and it sends them home, and they get used in these, what's called a... Um, a jailbreak tweak. It's like a little more software you can install once you've jailbroken your phone. Mm-hmm. And The the point of these tre- tweaks was to offer people free apps from the iTunes Store. Now the only way you can get those free apps is if you're piggybacking on somebody else's credentials. I so see. what was basically happening is they're scraping from users and then redistributing to users so that no one was being directly charged but you know if, if you were a victim you were definitely feeling the right. heat. If you
1: like had that. your credentials stolen you might see some odd uh, iTunes charges on your account, Yep, that you didn't actually buy those apps.
0: Exactly. Okay. So um, there's some interesting little things. They do a little bit of research on who would be behind it. Turns out they were using an AES key to encrypt these credentials when they were being sent, um, and they correspond to the name of a user on the forum. So he put uh, his own name in the code, which, you know, not that bright, but interesting they were able to trace it back to him and see that there are a number of apps that he had been uploading that were, you know, infected with this malware. It seems that um, 225,000 sets of credentials were stolen with this malware already. Uh, I do want to point out, like I do with all of these stories, that this is definitely stuff that comes from outside of the, the iTunes store. So right. you have to jailbreak your phone, and you have to install this this outside software in order to be vulnerable to this sort of thing. This doesn't just happen to you using your iPhone regularly. An interesting an interesting tale of, of redistributing credentials to, to get
1: free apps, right. quote-unquote. And as we've seen with other cases, you have to have a jailbroken phone. Yep. So I haven't really seen much malware. I don't even, I'm not sure I can recall any iOS-based malware on a phone that's not jailbroken, uh, unless it's somehow slipped into the App Store. Uh, but usually, uh, Apple's been very quick about getting that out of the, uh, the official App Store. I don't really, I'm not even aware of any cases, but um, long story short, don't jailbreak your phone, right? If you, if you don't jailbreak your phone and install apps from these third-party stores, that's gonna do you um, a world of good in terms of uh, limiting your exposure to this type of uh, malware type of activity on your phone, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. And I guess same thing with Android. You know, we talk about Android a lot and they, um, they have the same types of issues with the Android. It's a little bit easier, I think, to sideload with an Android mm-hmm. uh, from a third-party store than it is maybe with iOS. But um, same type of situation. Be careful where you're installing apps from. If you go to the official stores, you don't jailbreak your phone. You're probably uh, going to have less chance of getting any kind of bad stuff on your phone. Yep. All right. Cool. So the next story we, uh, we have is uh, one that you were going to discuss, Patrick, um, about the Roots Asylum at DEF CON. So I guess you had some info for us about that one.
2: Yeah, well, I just wanted to share, uh, AT&T is a sponsor of an event called Roots Asylum at the Hacker Conference DEFCON in August. Uh, So uh, it's now the beginning of September, and it feels like it was just last week that we were wrapping everything up. But uh, in a nutshell, so DEFCON, of course, is the the major uh, North American event where security research community, hacker community, the defense community all gets together and learns about things and shares things and talks about stuff. And of course, we're now, I think, on DEFCON 23, which means some of the hackers out there have gotten old enough to uh, procreate and have children that are someday (laughs) thinking about maybe getting into the information security profession. What's interesting today is uh, for folks who are my age, when we were learning security concepts, we were able to explore a lot more uh, with a lot more uh, freedom than uh, perhaps that kids today can. And kids really need mentorship and guidance so they understand where there are likely to be consequences for different actions and really some of the consequences of just any kind of security testing they might do. So Roots Asylum is a three-day event and uh, it provides an environment for teaching kids from around the world how to love being white hat hackers. Uh, They define what a white hat hacker is for the kids Uh, And they have a nice way of saying, uh, it's someone who enjoys thinking of innovative new ways to make, break, and use anything to create a better world. So AT&T is a sponsor of this event. We're really happy to be a part of it. Sponsorship means uh, providing financial support, but it also means that we uh, provide demos for the kids to work through. And so we had three uh, contributions for uh, the event this year. We had something called the Junkyard. Uh, So I think many of us have spent time taking apart toys and technology in our youth. Uh, I know I spent a lot of time taking apart computers when I barely knew how to use them, uh, and that taught me a lot. And so at the junkyard, we bring in a whole whole bunch of older technology and just let the kids take screwdrivers and hammers and start taking things apart. Uh, And there's usually a pretty dynamic group of people. So some of the kids will end up taking off resistors and different Potentiometers and DC motors from printers, and they'll solder them together and actually make a fan. Or uh, in some cases, we had speakers. Uh, so, you know, we give them a safe place where they can break things. Um, and then we actually delve into technology. Uh, I did a demo called Around the World in 80 Milliseconds, and we used WebRTC, uh, the wonderful peer to peer technology for browsers, for being able to do a streaming demo so that the kids could see the latency of a connection from Las Vegas to a server in Dublin, Ireland. And so they could send packets to the other side of the planet and back and be able to see just how quick that latency is. And we put that in the context of, you know, in the 1600s, it used to take between 30 and 140 days to get across the Atlantic. In the 1900s, when we got aircraft working, our first aircraft flights were 14 hours across the Atlantic. It's still seven hours from New York to to London. But using the power of the Internet, we can actually do this connection in, in seconds, uh, which is just really wonderful. And we took them through doing the trace route demos and pinging and understanding how many routers there are between the sites. So uh, really valuable for kids who don't even think about the Internet in terms of web pages and web servers anymore. If you ask a kid what their favorite web page is, they will tell you, I don't know. They might prompt you and say, YouTube, but they're thinking about YouTube as an iOS app or an Android app. They're not thinking about YouTube.com. So we get to kind of peel the layers back and explain kind of what is a server and what is a client and how does all this amazing connectivity happen? Uh, And then finally, um, Josh Lackey, who's uh, on, I think, a couple of weeks ago, uh, he did demo work with the kids where they got to experiment with software defined radios. So he had a couple of CV radios and he was using, um, uh, let's see, the RTL-SDR to do scanning to watch um, the frequency for when you opened and closed the connection between the CV radios. So the kids got to see spectrum and see how kind of uh, the waves are perturbed whenever we push certain kind of buttons. So it's a really wonderful project. We're super enthusiastic about supporting it. You know, our big goal is we want to make sure that we provide a good environment for the next generation of security workers where they can both learn how to do security right, but also learn from good mentors and get good guidance so that they don't end up in any kind of, uh, any kind of trouble in the long run. Really special project. We're super proud to be a supporter of it and we're looking forward to doing it again next year. So if you're coming to ha- uh, DEF CON and you have kids, anywhere between 10 and 18, that's a really good time to start thinking about bringing your kids to to get them exposed to some of this stuff.
1: All right, very cool. I mean, you covered a lot of ground there, uh, not only in just describing it, but it sounds like the whole Roots Asylum workshop there also covered a lot of different types of ground. The software defined radio thing, I think is really cool. We've played around with it here a little bit. I know some of us have the other there was something else that you had mentioned there that I was, oh, just in general, I think it's really important. And we've talked about this, Stan and I, that younger people understand how computers communicate with each other, because we've noticed that in a lot of cases, we're seeing younger people that use the Internet and understand just how to get to websites and get their email, but don't understand actually how that information is um, transited across a series of routers and how networks work and firewalls and things like that. So I think it's really cool and important that kids get exposed to this kind of thing so that they have a good foundation. Because I think if you understand how the machines communicate, from a security aspect, that gives you a real big leg up on understanding security vulnerabilities, where a vulnerability might exist, and things like that. Sure. Um, so, really cool. Um, yeah. I, I didn't even know about this until you had mentioned it, but I, I, it's a interesting program. I don't have any kids, but if I did, I would. Probably
2: <laughs> <take into it. laughs> well, you, you don't have to have kids uh, to be a part of Roots if you're going to come and volunteer. Uh, you do have to have kids if you're going to attend. So. My challenge to you, John. Let's get you out there next year, and let's get you working on a demo. Uh, If you want, I'll let you take my old one while I work on the new one for next year.
3: All right. Well, uh, let's. We have a demo of our own, don't we, John? Which one? (laughs) With the point of sale. Oh yeah, we have an interesting
1: (laughs) point of sale uh, malware uh, demo, probably that we could have uh, leveraged. But in any event, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of cool things that could be discussed. So. uh, and, I, you know, after you know, I saw the, the synopsis online of all the different things, like lock picking. They have all kinds of workshops. It's very interesting. I, I didn't even know about it. So, uh, thanks for uh, bringing it to our attention, and hopefully people will see the show. It would have been nice if we had gotten, you know, maybe this before the DEF CON show actually occurred, so maybe get some people interested. But uh, next year, we're going to try to do that so that we make sure people are aware of it before it happens and maybe get uh, some more people out there.
2: It is not too early to start the 2016 hype, so uh, I think this is just, just the beginning of many sessions. <laughs> right, right.
1: Okay, cool. Next story on the docket is one that you've been looking at uh, regarding Internet of
3: Things, and I guess they're getting some funding uh, to look at the security around those devices. Yeah, you know, we always on the show talk about the Internet of Insecure Things and we always would like them to be designed more securely. We we'll always mention how these items aren't, are, these Internet of Things aren't designed secure, securely. Uh, well, something that caught my attention this morning was an article at Threatpost that talks about uh, the NSF, the National Sci- Science Foundation, funding several grants to study the security in the Internet of Things. And uh, as I was reading actually the different grants and the grant proposals, I found this new term that I hadn't heard before, uh, which relates to Internet of Things. It's called uh, CPS, which is the Cyber Physical Systems. So a class of Internet of Things that has to do with um, the way that we interact with machines in a more physical world. For example, things that might have to do with like parking or you know, if there were sensors in the parking to let you know more about parking. But even more important, infrastructure type things that can regulate. Um, important uh, decisions about, you know, how the the grid should be, the smart grid. And so there might be sensors to determine, hey, we need more power or less power and regulating that kind of thing. So that CPS term is used for Internet of Things that are more important. Uh, so, so it's something it's new. Yeah.
0: Something like a SCADA system? So yeah, I think it's it, the, the sensor side of a SCADA
3: system. Or? I think they're referring to, uh, when they're referring to it, uh, they might be referring to all of Uh, the Internet of Things architecture within the SCADA system. I know SCADA consists of the control software and the sensors, um, so this could still be like that. I think when people refer to Internet of Things, it's probably all of the sensors and the control logic uh, around it. So in the CPS, yes, I think it supposes all of these items. It's something that I didn't know before, which I thought was interesting. So anyway, uh, they split the industry up into these different projects. So there's a project focusing on studying Internet of Things with regard to like smart energy, uh, cars, uh, mm-hmm. driverless cars, um, and a couple of other things, and one project which I thought was interesting is a project to create a framework for developing more secure architecture for Internet of Things. It's going to focus on several of the concepts that are important to creating a secure architecture. So, for example, making sure that communication is secure between the sensors and the um, and and the controller, um, and then as well making sure, you know, that information is stored uh, securely. And then there was another concept in a different project, which I thought was interesting, is, you know, some sensor data, when it comes through, can actually reduce your privacy. For example, uh, some sensor data, like your your home's automation system, Mm -hmm. you know, you might be sending over, like, the temperature that is currently in the house. Well, the lower temperature, maybe you're not home, you know, you're, Turn your thermostat down. So, there's certain, during certain seasons, certain temperatures or certain metrics in the sensor data might indicate, hey, you're actually not home. So, there's some possible privacy considerations there. So, one of the projects is going to study that the home automation and how you can potentially, you know, what are the problems with privacy there, and how you can increase privacy in places where you didn't think of it before. And, uh, you know, they're going to set up some labs. Some of the projects are to set up labs and universities and teach college students and high school students about this. It actually goes back to maybe what you guys were talking about with the Roots Asylum, you know, introducing that newer generation uh, to some of these things and making sure uh, that they're designed more securely uh, going forward. So, uh, very interesting. I'm glad to see this development. We know that security in general on
1: the Internet of Things devices is not particularly good, especially when we talk about a lot of the things. We talk about are all these a lot of DSL modems, um, DVRs. Uh, your your DVRs, your network attached storage devices. These are computing devices, but there's even other types of things out there that we you know talked about that get exploited, like bill- electronic billboards on the side of highways. Oh, I've yeah. heard about hacking against those. Everything's becoming connected to the internet and. Um, It seems like a lot of people are rushing to get their products out to market but maybe not thinking about the fact that they're not so secure. Um, So uh, thinking about security and getting some funding in that space is probably a good idea.
2: I think Cisco has some numbers. They say that there are going to be 50 billion devices connected by 2020. So 6 million divided into 50 billion, it doesn't seem like a lot in the grand (laughs) scheme of things. Yeah, less than a penny per
1: device. Uh, <laughs> per device. <For> device.
2: <laughs> if there was one piece of advice that you were to give for people that are getting into the industry, just out of curiosity, what, what is the one thing that an IoT vendor needs to get right? Would well, you want to go first? Um,
0: sure. I think there's several answers here, and I think they're all kind of equal. I think we're all on the same page for them, so I'll go first, and maybe okay. you can fill in the other ones. For me, it's to make sure that you don't have any external-facing services that don't need to be running. I mean we've seen these devices get broken into because they're still running Telnet, which is an ancient protocol, which is used mostly for debugging, as I understand it, and you can sort of use it to, to maintain your system. but you know, it doesn't check you know how many times you've attempted to log in with a password, it doesn't encrypt the traffic. It's really just a bad idea. We've also got you know boxes that are running things like DNS and SSDP on the outside and they, they the don't need, need to debate. be out there. They're not really serving right. anything useful, but they're used for reflective attacks all the time. Right. So if you're able to just harden the outside of these boxes, get rid of the unaided services, that's a good step
1: in the right direction. And I would also add if I was an IoT device creator, if I was building devices, I'd want to build in some mechanism to be able to update it. So if there is a vulnerability, I can push a patch to those devices, but also do, do that in a secure way, using some kind of public-private key uh, authentication or something to make sure that there's no rogue software getting dropped on there. Um, but I think you know a lot of uh, device vendors have started to move to the auto-update, or at least make users aware that there are new updates. Like I know I have a new home router that uh, it has an automatic update feature built into it, whereas the one I got five years ago, that wasn't even a consideration. I had to go get something and like, Uh, TFTP it up you know the new firmware up now they've made it a lot more um, uh, easy for the user to take care of that so that would be my recommendation in terms of helping secure
3: the device. How about you Stan? Those are all good recommendations I think just considering the security of the whole system as it operates together is important I mean obviously you know following best practices for closing things down or making sure you have an update process are important. But just considering how everything will interrelate to each other uh, is also important. Making sure that the whole solution is designed. Which is why actually one of the uh, projects I'm very excited about because that's actually exactly what they're aiming to do. It's create that framework that people can use so that they, you know, all the components are kind of pick and choose, you know, secure communications they can do. and So there's a framework for that. Uh, Secure control logic, there's a framework for that. Um, state machine analysis to make sure that you know as the sensors feed the data back in, uh, into the control logic, that you don't get into some sort of a weird state. So all of those things are important as well. And so I'm really excited about that one project that is going to develop this framework.
2: I think as, uh, as the one who started this game, I'm going to cl- declare all of us winners, but I think John is the, the number one winner. I totally agree on oh. the, uh, the secure communications connections. I think this is the number one problem even in the mobile industry. Uh, and I think if you look at some of the, the mobile companies, the, the OEMs that are out there, their, their pedigree is in manufacturing refrigerators and kitchen appliances. And they've moved on to develop handsets. And uh, there, are some, uh, there are some old school up approaches uh, to the need for updating software um, in kitchen appliances that maybe didn't necessarily make as much sense in the beginning of the mobile world. But now we're starting to see that mobile devices need updates all the time. And as we connect our kitchens, we're gonna need to do those updates as well. And if there was only one thing I was to tell anyone who is doing IoT security, it is this, that they need to have their development team understand the difference between SSL, HTTPS, and TLS. They need to know that they go with TLS 1.2 for all of their updates. And they need to understand why that's important in the context of authentication, and uh, integrity of device updates. So, John, you win. You talk about SSL and HTTPS and, and secure connections. That, to me, is my, my number one issue, uh, at least today.
1: All right. All right. So, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess we solved the problem. We just need people to follow our advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I think this is a good segue into the next story with regard to Internet of Things because the lizard stressor uh, botnet was composed of Internet of Things devices, uh, as maybe other devices as well, but predominantly there was a lot of home routers and whatnot that were part of that. And I guess there's, a, you have a story you were looking at regarding the Lizard Stressor botnet and yep. some of the actors there. So uh,
0: the National Crime Agency in the UK uh, actually just arrested six users of uh, Lizard users. Stressor. Okay. Not the runner, the people running Lizard Str- Stressor, which would have been members of Wizard Squad, uh, but users. And I believe this is a, a strong deterrent against people who believe that, simply because they're not responsible for the infrastructure behind a tool like Lizard Stressor, mm-hmm. that they, they are somehow immune from prosecution for using it as well because you know, the effects of using a, a stressor tool like this, and we're calling it a stressor or a booter, but really we're talking about a DDoS tool for right. hire. Right. Um, using this sort of thing has major consequences, you know, can have an economic impact, can disrupt portions of the internet if you use it. I mean, it's, it's definitely the right message to be sending, to people who think that, you know, it's just a fun tool, we can just sort of, you know, maybe I'll take out my friend's Xbox Live session over here, or maybe I'll mess up with my school's, um, you know, network traffic so I don't have to take a test this week. I use those examples on purpose because the the six people that were arrested, who have all gone out on bail, by the way, they were all within between the ages of 15 and 18, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of a heck of a statistic isn't it I mean if anybody at the the age of 15 can go out and and cause this kind of damage simply by having access to to Bitcoin to pay for the hours of and and point it at the target that they want I mean who's to say that more dedicated and and, you know technical people can't do so much worse right Um, so the the arrests are most likely I believe based on the database dump from when a lizard stressor was hacked and their user database was exposed back in January. Right, right, right. Uh, it's been quite a while, it, I mean, it's, it's sort of a long run between January and now to, to wait for these arrests, but I guess they were probably busy building cases against these folks um, in the meantime. As they do, Lizard Squad turned around and apparently DDoSed the, the National Crime Agency's own website this week as well, and there was a little bit of a Twitter spat over that, which was, you know, incredibly mature. Right. Of them. <laughs> but um, yeah, just an interesting story. I think in terms of, I would like to see more of these kinds of prosecutions. Right. Well, they're kind of.
1: It's interesting that they're kind of using the users to kind of set an example. And you know, a lot of times we see law enforcement go against the um, creators and architects behind these botnets. And that's mm-hmm. it. They shouldn't. Um, I think they should try to because those are the people who are going to build the next botnet anyway. You know, getting users that use these tools to attack other people mm-hmm. and maybe setting an example there might be a deterrent from other people using them as well in the future um, because like you said it is i don't know i'm not a lawyer so i don't know the criminality behind it and whatnot obviously they have some case they built here um, but you can disrupt service and um, you're certainly going to violate uh, you know network terms of service with multiple providers along the way i would think so you know, interesting uh, story and uh, interesting to see the ages behind.
0: You know. I'm, I'm kind of curious as to to what Patrick has to say about this one. Having come from Roots Asylum, uh, seeing where the, the, the white hat side of this kind of activity is being so heavily promoted and seeing kids being, I think, brought up in the right way of how to, to take these skills and use them for good. Um, I mean, what's your take on this kind of activity, of people who have strayed from that path at such a young age?
2: Uh, well, I'm... You know, kids are going to be kids and they're going to do dumb things. And, you know, that's I, I want to make sure that the dumb things that they do uh, have limited time span for their consequences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I feel I, I, you know, on the one hand, these kids shouldn't be, be doing that stuff. It's incredibly stupid. Uh, I think, you know, a good analogy in terms of playing with any of those tools is if you take time to care about the food that you're eating and the, the quality of the food. Um, The there's a similar analogy. Why are you running software from some stranger and particularly with? uh, Some of the interesting motives that some of these communities have on your home PC You're you're putting Materials that you don't know the source of you don't necessarily understand all the consequences of onto this machine and there can be terrible consequences So you know these are these are kids where I kind of feel like man, you know, it's really unfortunate they really needed guidance at a special time in their lives and they're gonna have tremendous consequences for a f- far more significant period of time than uh, when we were their age, mm-hmm. uh, if we were exposed to any of these similar situations. So I, I just think that you know, people need to be real careful and you know, I'll, I'll push the roots program. A, a big part of why we're interested in that project is because we want to give people a positive outlet for some of this energy. We wanna give them safe guidance and we want to give them access to good mentors. I think in, in this case, these people had some influencers that maybe were not people who had their best interests in, in mind. Right, right. All right, very good, uh,
1: uh, very good insights there, and I agree. Giving, you know, giving kids uh, a safe environment to, um, to kind of learn and expand their knowledge but not necessarily do any damage to anybody like you're doing with the Roots Asylum I think that's the way to go um, and uh, looks like so these kids probably fell off the the track a little bit but you know we know that that's typically the case we see a lot of the DDoS activity that we pick up and a lot of it is consumer oriented gaming related or school um, or schools yeah we see that a lot so there's no reason for 40 year, I can't think of a reason for a 40 year old guy to go uh, DDoS a school during test time so It's kind of, it doesn't take a a long stretch of imagination to figure out who might be behind that activity. So anyway, uh, uh, interesting story. So before we go into the internet weather, just wanted to mention um, one thing that we talked about last week maybe. I think so. So there was um, uh, a story I think Matt covered about BitTorrent and its ability to be used in uh, DDoS attacks. So uh, the BitTorrent protocol is UDP. Um, There's some mechanisms in there where an attacker can send a packet to um, a node that's in the the peer-to-peer network and reflect, you know, if you spoof the source, it'll reflect it to a victim, and then there's no real handshaking going on there, I guess, or authentication uh, since it's UDP, and then he can follow that up with another packet that's much larger and kind of push that to uh, the reflector and send a lot larger packet of payload to the uh, victim machine. Uh, so you can do some amplification and whatnot with this uh, type of attack. And that's really the key behind it is that uh, using the BitTorrent protocol, it's not just one packet. You had to kind of send two packets, but you could get amplification out of that if you took the time and energy to do that. And it's pretty easy, right? Because it's very easy to harvest a list of peer-to-peer bots within the BitTorrent network. That's, that's almost trivial point. to yeah. do, right? Um, so, uh, BitTorrent has, um, uh, I forget exactly the library that it's the UTP library or something like that. They have a patch for it. Now it does some more authentication around these packets so that you can't send the large packets and reflect them without some authentication that goes on first. And, um, so there is still some reflection you're not really as an attacker it's not going to do much good to you because you're going to spend as much energy sending 62 bytes to the reflector and all he's going to reflect is 62 bytes to the victim so you really haven't gained any amplification there so you're going to expend a lot of energy and not really get uh, any amplification out of it if you still try to use um, that but this new patch they put in limits the amplification basically it makes it non-amplifiable and uh, that's a good thing Uh, so i think this would uh, prevent people from wanting to use it as a reflection vector for DDoS and whatnot.
0: I mean, it's still worth it, isn't it? Well, it's still valuable to an attacker as an anonymization vector. That's, that's still yes, works, right? Yes,
1: uh, they can. But if I, if I had a list of, let's say, 100 um, uh, peer-to-peer BitTorrent nodes... I'd have to send each one of them 62 bytes 62 bytes so i'm basically saturating my pipe and i'm only getting the same amount back from all those guys to the victim and i I just realized
0: it's trivial again to to spoof your source address anyway uh
1: yes because you can just send it right to them yeah yeah Yeah. right kind of yeah it's kind of it doesn't make a lot of sense uh so i don't i think this is a pretty good solution they came up with here um no amplification anymore so uh, and that's always what most of these guys are looking for is some way to get some amplification I want to send a small packet and have the reflector send a much larger packet to the, uh, to the victim that I'm uh, targeting. So on that note, let's go to the internet weather. And uh, there isn't really a whole lot of news here. I will say that uh, SSDP, uh, we're going to take a look at this. We're going to actually look at SSDP and the Microsoft SQL Server. But um, SSDP has moved into the number one position. Uh, In terms of most probe ports, usually we see uh, Telnet up there because we know that there's a ton of these Internet of Things bots scanning for Telnet as well, like the DSL modems and other devices like that out there. SSDP has kind of ramped up here. We'll take a look at a picture of it, I think, if I can remember right. 23TCP Telnet uh, slipped down a notch on the uh, top ten here. Uh, 1433 TCP is actually increased five positions, so we'll take a look at that one. 22 TCP is SSH, 80 TCP is web traffic, 445 TCP, the SMB stuff, you know, Windows file sharing, that's always in there. We're going to take a look at that, I think, in a later slide. 443 TCP, your uh, HTTPS connections, Uh, RDP, 3389 TCP, we see that as well. Actually, I think Um, no, that one's stable, but I think it's kind of, it used to be back in the top 20 and now it's kind of crept back up into the top 10 again. So we're seeing it back on the chart again. And then NTP, uh, 123 UDP. And we're actually going to take a look at some DDoS charts that Brian actually helped put together, uh, and he, he passed over to me. So we're going to take a look at those as well, uh, at the very end here. Uh, but jumping ahead, here's 1900 UDP. So you can see this is actually a year long chart. And you can see way back at the beginning here uh, of this picture, which would have been exactly a year ago, there really wasn't as much SSDP. And attackers started to realize, hey, this protocol is active on a bunch of devices out there on the internet. And it's UDP. And I can send a small query like we were just talking about and get a much larger response back out from that device. Basically, you send a query to it and it sends some kind of SSDP I don't even know. It's It's
0: like the list of available services or something like that? Yeah, something
1: like that, right. It's it's textual. You can read it, but I I can't remember exactly what it says. Anyway, you can see that there's kind of a uptick here since like the uh, July timeframe. I want to say there's a little bit of an upward trend. And again, this is scanning. There might be some mixture in here of actual attack traffic because with UDP, it's sometimes hard for us to discern what's really scanning versus attacking traffic and whatnot based on the algorithms that kind of calculate those metrics. Most of this scanning is happening from a few number of sources in China, not many. I want to say like 40, 40 to 50, something like that. I didn't really take a close look at them otherwise, you know, in in any other respects than that uh, from uh, anything except the location that they're coming from. Microsoft SQL Server I thought was interesting. So 1433 TCP, most of this is coming from China again, uh, the scanning activity, but you can see there's definitely, uh, this is a 60 day view because I thought that was more representative Depending on what's going on, I might usually take a picture. that's either longer or shorter on the number of days that we're looking at here. But since last week, because I think uh, 8.24 was last week, right, was the last time we did the show. This is September 1st, the show. Uh, You can see that's what this big, large increase in activity is here. Uh, So it's definitely elevated. Again, most of it is from China. So something to keep an eye out for. I don't really, you know, I guess it could be brute force type of scanning activity. Um, I'm not quite sure what else you'd be looking for with SQL, except to possibly brute force and gain access to them. This is the most sources probing. So this one, we rarely see a lot of movement up and down in the chart on these ports and protocols because it requires a lot of sources to, in unison, start changing their behavior to scan or not scan various ports. So this one, this particular chart, is usually indicative of botnet related activity as opposed to a single actor who might be doing lots of scanning. This one requires a lot of different devices, a lot of different IPs doing scanning in unison. So again, 23 TCP on the top of the chart has been there for a long time now, and most of it is due to this Internet of Things type scanning, trying to brute force, get into these devices, compromise them, and then use them as part of their botnet like the lizard stressor botnet that we talked about. Uh, or other ones there's plenty of other ones out there as well 445 tcp we're actually going to take a look at this one as well that one's held at position three on the chart and uh, this is your microsoft directory services uh, file sharing type stuff that goes on with windows um, so that's an interesting one we're going to look at the behavior there and there's also a vulnerability like the configure worm which is getting pretty old now it uh, was exploiting a vulnerability in that particular service on older versions of Windows, so, and there other botnets did as well, but Conficker was probably one of the more infamous ones, and uh, it was able to... It was wormable because it was able to compromise and then drop malware on there and you know, create a bigger and bigger botnet based on that. 27015 UDP, that is the Steam Gaming Protocol. Mm-hmm. There's been some discussion. I know you discussed it um, that this can be used potentially as a reflection vector for DDoS. Um, I don't know that we've actually seen any evidence of that. Uh, we should probably take a closer look at it because it is UDP. So pretty much anything that's UDP is reflectable. Um, not everything, but you know a lot of them are because you can spoof the source. Um, so that's an interesting one. We should probably take a closer look at. It. It's been in the chart forever. It's always kind of been hovering in the top 10, mostly because of the popularity of that as a gaming protocol. But uh, uh, it would be good to discern if there's a way what, which of it is legitimate and which is, might be DDoS related um, if they're actually using it for that purpose. Reflective DDoS. Uh, SSH is at the number six position. See that as well. And, you know, uh, similar to Telnet, basically just remote shell access, uh, except this is encrypted. The 17788 UDP, as well as the 9101 UDP, are these two new BitTorrent-related protocols. That they're not new protocols. It's just BitTorrent riding over those two protocols for various uh, file sharing, torrent file sharing. Don't really have a rationale still as to why those ones, those ports are being used, and we're seeing more and more activity and scanning of it, um, or what we, you know, uh, discern as scanning. As far as I know, it's benign. I don't know that it's security related, but I also don't really know a whole lot more than just observing that it's BitTorrent traffic. So here's the uh, Telnet chart and just wanted to kind of, I did a 180 day view on this one, this is six months. And you can see six months ago, back in early part of this year, March timeframe, it wasn't as big, but even back then we thought this was pretty significant. About 30,000 scan sources or so up at the peak here. But since about, let's see, May timeframe, we've been hovering around 70,000, upwards of 80,000 uh, scan sources per hour on this uh, Telnet protocol. That's a significant number of devices out there scanning, and I don't see them being overthrown. In terms of the 23TCP in the number one position, I don't see that he's gonna be overthrown anytime soon in terms of number of scan sources. So we'll see how that pans out if I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but... Uh, We'll see. The scan sources on port 445 TCP, the Microsoft uh, directory service, file sharing type stuff, uh, we showed a picture of this not that long ago, maybe a couple of months ago, and there had been kind of a downward trend. Um, this has, so we're talking about 70,000 something scan sources with Telnet. This one's at about twenty-five to 27,000, so definitely a lot less, and he's in the number three position. I forget what the number two was at this point. But it's been going down. And then somewhere around uh, the early part of this year, uh, or maybe late into uh, December last year, it started to creep up again. It Recently, within the past month and a half, two months maybe, there have been a couple of dramatic dips in the number of scan sources on this. I'm not quite sure why that is. I can say with relative confidence that the majority of this scanning activity is botnet related. So it could be that some botnets have decided, I'm not going to scan for this anymore, and I'm going to go scan for other things. That might account for why there's such dramatic dips in in here as opposed to a gradual dip. But uh, just a theory right now. Uh, I hope the trend continues downwards, uh, because this is noisy. And we're actually going to talk about how much noise does all of the, well, this, this particular scanning, but I want to talk about the distributed reflective denial of service stuff. And we've shown this chart before, and this is a two-year view. You can see back two years ago, um, we're looking at like five, uh, maybe a peak of, actually, it was really like five to seven gigabits per second. And so we're seeing like seven gigabits. And when you look at all the various protocols, this includes SNMP, includes CareGen, DNS, Fragmentated, which is this yellow band, so a lot of these reflective protocols when you use UDP, the first packet will come back, but then if it's bigger than a, you know, max packet size, it'll get fragmented across multiple packets with a port of zero. So that's why we have zero UDP in here. 1900 UDP is the SSDP that says dark green, which you can see really only started uh, towards the last part of uh, the late part of last year, 2014. The bright blue, or I guess, I don't know, aqua color here, 123 UDP, which there are significant spikes in here in the uh, January to February time frame of 2014. That's when that vulnerability was kind of really took off and people were using it for. You mean the,
0: um, the ModList capability? That's yes, the ModList NTP. Mon-list,
1: uh, NTP yeah. uh, so they're using, that was a really big one because with with the ModList exploit let's call it i don't really consider it a vulnerability with a monolist exploit you could send a small packet and what that would dump back is a list of everybody who actually connected to the thing to ask it a question or something like that and some devices had huge numbers of ip addresses that had used it especially if they had been part of a DDoS attack once before. This was pretty significant, upwards of like 50 gigabits per second in the middle of January, February timeframe of 2014. And then people started to figure oh, this is a big problem, let's try to patch this. And a lot of people patched NTP and that has gone down since. There's still a bounce of it in here that you can see, but it's uh, come down quite considerably. So when you look at this, I would say for the most part, the bright green, the DNS is still in here pretty significantly. There's some Karagen, which is the bright red at the bottom. The yellow stuff is all fragmented stuff, so it's hard to attribute it to any particular one, uh, any particular protocol. And then your dark green uh, SSDP has started to improve. You can kind of see it's, it's less greeny in the past month or two, which is good. And there's still a little bit of the, um, uh, the NTP in here. And uh, SNMP actually has picked up a little bit as well, but it's so down in the noise here, you can barely even see it in our chart. This is the last chart I want to show you real quick. And I think it's really interesting. So this is one Brian put together today for another presentation he was giving. And this is actually a relative depiction of the distributed reflective dial service traffic on our network for the past two years. Let me explain what this means. So he did a, a really elaborate analysis here that said, for the past two years, I want to know how much of the traffic was distributed reflective denial of service traffic, those ports we were just looking at before, versus the total amount of traffic we have on our entire network. And he scaled that. So you know, two years ago, we probably had, let's say, this amount of traffic on the entire internet, whereas today we have this amount of traffic on the entire internet. So this is all adjusted and scaled so that it's not, it kind of flattens out based on the total volume of traffic. So it's a relative picture. Uh, and he also computes a uh, moving average, a 10-day moving average to kind of show a little bit more, that's this dark line in the picture here. You can see it's moving up, so it has been going up, and we kind of saw that anyway in the previous chart, but this kind of shows it a little bit better. This big pair of spikes um, towards the left center is all that NTP stuff, but, Here's the really interesting finding to me. Uh, on average, about 1.2% of our total traffic across our internet backbone of AT&T, which is pretty significant internet backbone, 1.2% of all that traffic is distributed reflective download service traffic. Wow. So one out of every 100 packets is bad traffic. It's attack traffic. Actually, a little bit more than one out of every 100, which is pretty significant. And at certain points in our network, uh, you know, with the NTP stuff, it actually reached up to. Maybe three and a quarter percent of the traffic on the entire backbone was attack traffic. So I thought this was an interesting picture. It'd probably be better for Brian to explain it in more detail. But I found it very interesting uh, that we have such significant amount of denial of service traffic on our network. Obviously, that's something that we would like to prevent. So, um, but until people stop running botnets and doing all these other types of activity both either on our network and you know, transiting across us or coming at us as attacks, uh, you know, we'll have to see if we can uh, hopefully uh, get this moving in a more downward trend. So that's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. Uh, you can also find the AT&T Threat Track program on the at and Tech channel as well as on YouTube and iTunes. Just search for AT&T Threat Track on YouTube or iTunes, you'll find us. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. I wanna thank uh, Patrick for joining us this week. Um, also thanks Matt, thanks Stan. Uh, I'm John Hogaboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe.
0: Views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants
2: and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.